0: Good morning, Crosspoint. My goodness, it is good to see all of you, especially in this second service. So well attended, so attentive. I'm conditioning you to be attentive. Hopefully it'll work. I'm so grateful to open the Bible with you. There's uh, really no other place I'd rather be and no other group of people I'd rather be with than my church family as we conclude the year together. How many of you have already made a New Year's resolution? I know sometimes it's hard to say, hard to tell if I'm being rhetorical, if I'm actually asking. But if you're if you don't mind, if you've already made a new year's resolution, it's at least on your mind, if not down on paper, you're gonna work on at least one specific thing in the new year. Would you raise your hand, please? Okay, that actually bears out roughly if I could see the number because sometimes you may have noticed I only look to my right. I'm like a bad basketball player. I can't go left. (laughs) So I'm not sure I checked this side of the room, but from what I could see, I think the number of hands raised kind of checks with the national survey I just read, which shows that roughly 40 or 50% of Americans like to make New Year's resolutions. It's really interesting what people are determined year by year to work on. Can you guess what the number one resolution might be. Amazing. For the second service on the same morning, both people have said weight loss and you were looking right at me when you did it and I'm going to try <laughs> not to take it personally. I've had a good year on that count. I, in, I intended in 2023 to lose 15 pounds and I only have 20 pounds to go. Um, <laughs> good year so far. Yes, you're right. Most people's resolutions have to do with their health and their fitness, both physical and mental. An astonishing number of people have confidence that they'll achieve their resolutions. About 80% of Americans have a high degree of confidence that they're going to make it. And it may interest you to know that men are more confident than women that they're going to make their resolutions. And none of them are correct because roughly a third of those New Year's resolutions are broken within three months of the new year. And only 1% of people keep their New Year's resolution all year. There's some interesting contradictions there. Many people, about 30%, want to do better financially. That's understandable. Maybe a little low. Don't we all want to do better financially? Is anybody hoping to stagnate or fall off the cliff? So about 30-some percent want to do better financially, but only 3% of American employees intend to do a better job at work. So there might be some disconnect there that you want to make more money, and yet hardly anybody wants to do better on their job. They just want to keep mailing it in the way they did in the year that just passed. Really interesting reading, and this is inevitably, especially on the last Sunday and the last day of the year, If anybody's going to make resolutions, this would be the time. And it can be a little hokey and it can be a little corny, but this much, whether you actually make resolutions or not, much less write them down. The end of a year is, I think, a wonderful opportunity to reflect by looking at what just is ending and looking forward to the year ahead. And that's the intention of this sermon. I'm going to explore with you a song in Scripture, a psalm, which is also a prayer. And I've thought about preaching it for a long, long time because I heard it for the first time preached when I was probably 14 years old in Mexico. And one of its hallmark verses has stuck with me all of these years, but I've never dared to open the Bible and to teach it to a congregation until today. So let me prepare you a little bit for what's coming. It's a psalm, and that means it's poetry. There's 150 psalms in the Bible, and there's various kinds within the hymn book, the song book, the poetry book of Israel. But the number one way to drain a song of, a, of its meaning is to overanalyze it and to chop it into tiny little pieces. For those of you who are note-takers, you might be a little bit frustrated today because I just want you to hear the song. And for those of you who are note-takers and love your bulletin and kind of are upset when there's not much on the note-taking sheet, (laughs) you're going to see just two headings there. One says God and the other says us. As you hear this prayer, because that's what it is, I want you just to listen to the music of Psalm 90. And I want you to take notes as the song teaches you things about things that it tells you about God and things it tells you about yourself. If you hear the truth on either count, if you hear the truth about yourself or you hear the truth about God, you'll be better off for it. Because this is a deeply realistic song. This is not the kind of schmaltzy love song where the guy says, you know, I'd climb the highest mountain, I'd swim the deepest ocean. Dude, you won't even open the door for her. Relax. You're not going to do any of those things. This is a psalm of Moses. And sometimes we can tell exactly what the songwriter was going through. If we know who the songwriter is, we can tell what he's going through by the song that he ended up writing. Open your Bibles with me in Psalm 90. You'll begin to see what I mean. The inscription on top of the Psalm is in italics in your Bible. It says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And the editors did not put that there. That is actually part of your Hebrew Bible. That was translated from Scripture. And in this case, knowing who the author is is deeply meaningful. Some scholars think that perhaps someone else wrote this down for Moses after hearing him pray and hearing him reflect on his time with Israel in the desert, and that is clearly what is on Moses' mind as he begins his prayer. Who was Moses? Moses was an extraordinary man in Scripture. Moses, by God's providence, was born into was born into an enslaved family, but raised famously in the courts of Egypt. A man of profound learning who did not ever forget his heritage. And at a time when Moses did not expect it and particularly wanted no part of it, God raised Moses up to lead his people miraculously from the land of Egypt, the world's greatest superpower at that time, and lead them miraculously through one of the greatest supernatural events recorded in biblical history. Lead them through the Red Sea. God specifically sent 10 plagues across Egypt, each one of them aimed at a specific Egyptian deity. Plagues are not coincidental or random. Each one is meant as a message both to Israel and to Egypt that God and God alone is the one true God, and both the Egyptians and the Israelites learned it before God was done sending those miracles. The great heartbreak of Moses' life came in two movements. When they came to the edge of the promised land, they famously sent spies across the river and the majority of those men came back and said, we cannot face them. They'll kill and enslave us. They'll kill our children. Only a couple of those spies spoke for God and said, no, we can do this. God has brought us this far. He will not fail us now. But because of the people steadfast complaining. If you've read your Old Testament, the Israelites in the wilderness are remarkably great complainers. Sometimes they complain about opposite things. They're mad about one thing and then God blesses them and they're mad about the blessing as well. This time they have exhausted God's deep patience. And this time their unbelief, this time their complaint, God says will cost that entire generation their lives. Everyone who listened to the false, lying, disbelieving report of the cowardly spies, God said, will die in the desert. Forty years will pass before everyone in that generation dies of natural causes. Your children who you feared for and thought would lose their lives, they'll get to enjoy the land, God said, but you won't because you wouldn't listen to me, and you wouldn't believe me. And Moses had the brutal obligation of watching an entire generation of people he knew and loved enough to lead die one by one. Many died of natural causes. Doubtless, some died in accidents. Some may have died directly as a judgment of God. doesn't matter how many there were. It was A whole generation's worth of a budding nation. And Moses watched them all die. And in Psalm 90, Moses begins to write this song. And I want to warn you on the front side, roughly two-thirds of this song is dark and depressing. There's not a bit of kumbaya in the first several movements of Psalm 90. The reason for that is it's real. It tells you the truth. And it tells us a truth about God, and it tells us a truth especially about ourselves that people in 21st century America no longer want to hear and have actually become quite good at denying. So my invitation to you is, as you listen to Moses pray and sing, Put up with the minor note. Put up with the dark music. Because you can't ever appreciate the light or even come to it unless you see the darkness in all of its fullness first. Read with me, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, what's it say there? You are God. God. It begins actually with a great note of promise and blessing. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God, as long as we have been a nation, you have been our shelter. You've seen us in slavery, you've seen us in the wilderness, but in all time, you have been a shelter to those who trusted you. The people who actually heard you and obeyed you and kept covenant with you, you have been our refuge. And you're a strong God. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed, the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses here is telling you something extraordinary about God. He's telling you specifically that God is eternal. That before anything else in the universe existed, before the mountains were brought forth by God, before God formed the earth and the world that we know, God simply is, he says in verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's a fundamental thing for you to carry with you in 2024. This is a prayer from Moses that for all of its dark notes, before the music changes and gives us hope, is deeply helpful if we will sit quietly with the message, if we will take its warnings and judgments to heart. We can make our new year count if we will listen to Moses pray and pray for the things Moses prayed for and put them into practice. The most fundamental thing Moses tells us here in the first movement of the music is this. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Let me tell you why that matters. If you spend the next year praying to a God of your own imagination, it will do you no good. You will be praying and trusting and seeking someone who does not actually exist. And every person in the world is tempted to remake God into their own image. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think of God. If you think of a God who does not exist, and you pray to a God who does not exist, and you try to serve and please a God who is not actually there, that time will be wasted. It might even be harmful. Moses is deeply aware after his long journey with God of who God is God is the Lord. He's in charge of everything. He's sovereign, and He has been, He says, our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Number one Bible reading tip around here? Slow down. He is God. I can say to God in the year to come, you are God, not me. Now that may seem obvious to you, but do you ever act like God? My pastor, I've told you this before, it's such a great line and there's so much wisdom packed into it. My pastor, my predecessor in this pulpit said, one of the chief differences between God and you is God never gets confused and think that He is you. People act like gods, small deities of their own making in charge of their own lives every day. Moses sets that aside in just these first two verses. Look how far his sovereignty and his strength extends. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Here Moses hearkens all the way back to the first book he wrote, Genesis chapter 3. And he quotes the judgment of God on Adam, reminding Adam, from dust you were made and to dust you shall return. It's a heavy phrase. Preachers used to say it at funerals. It used to be part of our standard speech to stand over a graveside and remind the living, the person we're here to honor, the person we're here to mourn, has come from the dust and now to the dust their body has returned. And like I said, the music here in the first two movements is dark. And it struck me that I've never said that at a funeral. And maybe I should. Because there's such a deep note of realism and absolute truth in what Moses here says about God. And he saw it not only in God's personal revelation to him, he verified it through his experience. For 40 years, Moses watched God tell disobedient people, back to the dust from which I took you. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Here's another truth about God. Here's another span of the distance between us. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. What is time to God? Well, a thousand years are like yesterday or a watch in the night. A watch in the night is not like the wristwatch on my left hand. A Hebrew watch in the night is about four hours. And Moses is saying, God, a millennium to you is like the passing of four hours in the middle of the night. Time means nothing to you. You exist outside of it. You're eternal. You simply are. You are the one who makes everything. You are the one who exists outside of time. Verse five, you sweep them away as with a flood. They, people, in other words, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. You see the word image? Moses watched that happen. For four long decades, he watched people go from the prime of life Into death. He watched men in their late 20s, early 30s grow old, tired, begin to hurt, begin to slow down. And then one after another, an entire generation, according to God's faithful judgment, died in front of Moses. And he said, our lives to which which we hold in such high esteem, God, they're like grass in the morning that is gone in the heat of the day. It's like watching the sun rise over a dewy meadow covered with wild grass, and the dew is heavy, and it glistens, and you take your phone out, and it's so pretty because the light is refracted through all of those countless droplets of water. But then the Santa Ana winds start. And hot winds blow in off the desert. And it gets hotter than you could ever imagine a place could be, given the cool of the morning. And you go back in late afternoon, and you discover that all that wild grass has withered in front of you. It's dead under your feet. Now it looks from fresh and beautiful and promising to desolate and burnt. That, Moses says, is what our lives are like. let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) Hasn't this been the most uplifting thing you've ever heard in your life, especially on the last day of the year? Aren't you now empowered to go out and carpe the diem? (laughs) Seize that day? Let me tell you why we have to hear the dark notes first. There's something about poetry and song that prose and argument can never convey. This isn't the schmaltzy love song, as I told you. This is someone whose heart has been broken by what he learned and what he saw. Moses wishes that many of the things he recounts were not true, but they are. And a wise person, he'll tell us, will take them to heart. Because the only life that's worth living is a life that is lived according to the truth. It is far better to live the life, live your life by hard truths rather than hopeful fantasies and make beliefs. That will do you no good whatsoever. And this part of the song is dark. It's written in a minor key on purpose. Moses wants your eyes to be settled into the darkness before he begins to pray in a different direction and lets the mercy and the grace and the blessing of God dawn again in his heart and the heart of his hearers. It's a real song, and we have to endure the sad music before we hear the ending of it. Sometimes the best songs are just that way. My wife loves a sort of country-western artist named Lyle Lovett. Anybody else ever heard of him? Okay. Three people. Excellent. Well... Lyle Lovett is a pretty tremendous singer-songwriter, and because the power of music, he, I think even he would agree, not an especially good-looking man, for a brief time was married to one of the most beautiful and wealthy and famous actresses in the world. Lyle Lovett, through the power of music, married Julia Roberts for a very brief time. And it didn't last long. And he wrote a whole album after she left And one of his songs is brutally realistic. It says, and it brought me up short in the car. I nearly steered out of my lane when I heard him sing it. She's leaving me because she really wants to. She'll be happy when she's gone. And I thought, oh my goodness. I've never even had anybody walk out. If you ever had that experience, if someone just walked away from you, telling you, and then you could see for yourself that she's actually much happier now that you are no longer in her life, that'd be devastating. With much more eternal importance, that's what Psalm 90 wants you to see. It wants us to see first that God and God alone is God. That you need to deal with the God who is actually there. That he is eternal and timeless and that he acts in judgment. That the people who have sinned in his presence are those who he will one day say, Enough, I took you from dust, to dust you return. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed In the evening it fades and withers. Why is that, Moses? Why did that happen? He tells us. Because of sin. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. What did he say next? And we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That's as serious as the Bible gets. Moses is dealing now with the reason that brought death into the world. He's dealing with sin. He's telling you something serious about God that you and I would do well to remember. Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's very, very heavy. Every secret thing that you ever did in 2023, God has known all of it. It all sits before him as if in a bright room with him looking right at your secret darkest heart. And you need to know Never do I take the Bible in hand to beat anybody up. I just want you to hear the music of Scripture. I want you to hear the truth of who God is and who you are so that you can fashion a life that is meaningful and truthful and worthwhile and as Moses is going to show you, eventually, eternally glorious yourself. But you can't do it if you're not dealing with reality. And what this psalm made me think about this week is this very serious realization. I haven't gotten away with anything. Just like you, I've been able at one point or another to fool everybody in my life except the eternal God who made me. Every time my wife thought I was a better man than I was, my children thought I was a better dad, you thought I was a better pastor, at all moments, neither making things worse nor making things better than they truthfully actually are, God knows all the truth. God is truth and he knows the truth of every human heart. And Moses is saying, the reason, God, we die under your wrath is we have provoked it. We thought we were strong. We thought we were wise. We thought we knew better, but we didn't. And I've watched a whole generation die, Moses says. Verse 10 is very, very poignant. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. That's a poetic way of saying the strongest among us make it to the age of 80. But yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Anybody who's 80 can tell you how truthfully Moses wrote it's trouble. It's trouble getting old. I saw in an unexpected place a lesson that reflected the truth of Psalm 90 just last night. Here's the problem. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. (laughs) And the Dallas Cowboys played last night. And I won't bore you with the family history, but many, many years ago, one of the greatest coaches in the organization's history got sideways with its owner, Jerry Jones. And last night, they publicly reconciled. And the owner praised the coach and inducted him into a special spot of honor in the stadium known to Cowboys fans as the Ring of Honor. And there's not many names up there. And it's such a big occasion that they actually welcomed all of the living members of the Ring of Honor out onto the field. And that was a serious moment for me because I saw all of my childhood heroes on the field and I noticed something are all very, very old. <laughs> Amazingly, there's now a couple Hall of Famers that I personally can outrun. <laughs> and I gloried in that for a moment, and then I thought, but not for long. Because that man right there is a millionaire and was once one of the greatest athletes the world has ever seen And now you can see the toil and the trouble of the years on his face, in his body, in his movements, in the time it took him to get to the field he once ran upon and commanded. That's what Moses wants you to see. You're frail. And the judgment of God has fallen upon every sinful person, which is every single one of us. And perhaps the most fearsome verse in all of it is verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I think what Moses is saying here, that's an awkward sentence, the way it was translated. But I think Moses is saying, God, if only we knew the power of your anger, the depth of your judgment is as deep as the reverence and the awe that we owe you. In other words, Moses is saying in simple terms, God, you've been right the whole time we were wrong and we've paid for it. And another serious realization that came to me because again the intention of a sermon is never to beat up the people in front of me but to share with you what I believe God has said in his word and before it ever reaches you it has to touch me. Every time I've sinned I've had my reasons. And if you could sit down with me and Question me about why I did the selfish, ugly, ungodly thing I did? I could explain. Sometimes I thought I was owed an exception. Other times I thought they had it coming. Other times I made this callous deal. I don't know if you've ever done this. Yes, this is wrong and I know it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to ask forgiveness as soon as I'm done. right here, right now going to do what I want not what God said every person who's honest with God and honest with themselves lives this way and Moses says who really accounts God for what happens when your anger is provoked nobody lives according to the reality of your holy judgment and then finally gratefully the music changes Now Moses begins to pray for things. In all of these verses, he's been in earnest prayer to God and there's notes of confession in it and notes of learning and wisdom in it. But beginning in verse 12, Moses begins to ask God for things. And these are the things that we should do. Verse 12. So... Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses prayed for a lot here. Let me just tell you two of the things that matter most. These are the things that we should do in in light of who God actually is and who we really are. First, Moses says, pray for a wise heart. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's the verse I heard when I was just a kid. A Mexican preacher in Chihuahua, Mexico, went deep with this verse and it's stuck with me ever since. A wise man who knows who God is asks God to teach him how to number his days, how to count his days, so that based on the counting of days that are all too frail and all too brief and all too uncertain, the person will live with a wise heart. What is a wise heart? A wise heart is one that turns away from denial and self-justification. We excel in Because of the effect of sin on every human heart, we excel first at denial and then at self-justification, especially in 21st century America, where we have so sanitized and even beautified death, the simple, actual, painful reality that every one of us will someday die and face God, that's really easy to push out of your mind told you this before, it was one of the most striking comments I've ever heard and probably one of the hardest I've ever had to maintain a straight face. I was talking to someone who was nearly 100 about the impending death of her friend who was over 100, and speaking of her friend's death, she said, I just don't know why these things have to happen. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I almost felt compelled to ask a question. How long did you think she was going to make it? Our dear friend Natalie Stetler, who almost made it to 99, often told me how surprised she was to still be alive. About once every other visit, she would say, can you believe how old I am? And we would just sit there and marvel at it. That's real that doesn't deal with denial. Many times I'm a pastor. I'm often at hospitals and funeral homes. Often at funeral homes you hear this, doesn't he look good? And the answer always is, no, not really. (laughs) I mean, considering, yes. But good? No. Look at the pictures we've chosen to remember him by. Look how young he was. Look how hopeful, look how strong. That was the hard part with the stetlers. To go to their house and see pictures that were over 60 years old of this couple that grew old and died together. Life's gone just like that. Moses would strip you of the brutal lie of denial To always think that you have more time, you don't. You have a limited time, and the most sobering part is, not only is it limited, you don't know how long. You may be among those fortunate few who are surprised by how old you manage to get, but Moses would tell you, even in those outliers, even in the strongest, they find their final days to be filled with trouble. And self-justification, not a note of it in Psalm 90, God is God. God has been right. God has judged and corrected and disciplined and swept people into death, and he was right every single time. That's what the wise heart embraces, that God alone is God, that he alone is eternal, that he alone can give eternal life, and he alone can bless, and that's the second thing that Moses teaches us to pray for. He says pray not only for a wise heart, pray for blessed hands. Return, O Lord, have pity on your servants. Let me show you a little bit of poetry. Look up in verse 3 again. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. That is God turning man back to the dust from which he took him. In verse 13, Moses prays, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. The word choice is purposeful. God, you have the authority to return us to the dust. What I'm asking instead is that you return to us, that you will have pity on people who want to serve you. Our question is only this how long? Have you ever asked that of God in a tough spot? How long, God, will this go on? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God, we lost a whole generation. Show those who are still alive who you are. Before you turn to bless our work, show us your work In verse 17, here's a prayer you can take with confidence by the grace of Jesus into the new year. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Pray for God to bless the work that you do. Just remember this humbly, even the blessings we work for are gifts from God. It's all too easy when you succeed to step back and admire your own work and think that you're the cause of it and you're not. Your intelligence, your strength, your opportunities, the company you work for, the family you were placed in, anything that you consider a blessing from God was a blessing was not your doing. God initiated that in the first place. And like most people who were honest, I think you would have to say with me that I personally have struggled with that my whole life. I didn't have much to be proud of when I was 13 years old in Amarillo, Texas, but somehow I came across as cocky to my grandma. Nothing to be cocky about. I was a scared, bullied kid in seventh grade at Bonham Junior High School in Amarillo, Texas. And I think the veneer I was putting out was the few things that I was good at I was proud of. And my grandma, who was a straight shooter, looked at me one day and said, Bruce, you could have just as easily been born disabled. And I'm glad she said that. Because 40 some years later, it's reminded me how true it is and how true it still could be. Every one of us is an instant away from death and disability. So Moses says, God, we have nothing of our own. Our sin has cost us a generation. Our sin has cost us loss and opportunity. Instead of returning us to the dust, turn back to us. Bless us again. We saw the deep day that burned lives up. Now make your mercy and your steadfast love shine again upon us in the morning. And please, God, establish the work of our hands. We're going to get back to work. We're going to do what we should have done in the first place. We are going to be your servants. Please bless our work. Because even the blessings we work for are gifts from God. If you'll keep that in mind, you'll live gratefully all of 2024, even through the hardships. And the best thing I have to tell you in closing is simply this. Tozer said that the most important thing about us was what came to our mind when we thought of God. C.S. Lewis replied in disagreement. And he said what matters much more than what comes to our mind when we think of God is what comes to God's mind when he thinks of us. And I think he's right. And Moses could not know the fullness of the gospel that I'm now going to share with you. But if you keep reading through your Bible, you're going to find out that the Son of God stood between people and death and suffered all of our temptations and all of our frailties without sin and offers us, in place of judgment, eternal life. And God has turned by the grace of his son what were once rebels into his beloved sons and daughters. That's why we can pray with confidence to a God who is not only a sovereign God but who is actually our father who really has been a refuge for generations to all who trust him, who welcomes us into fellowship with him, not only as subdued servants, but as beloved sons and daughters. And what Moses wants us to do from this dark, dark song that takes some hopeful music at the very end is to learn to count our days. Because if we learn to count our days well, We'll make them count for Revel. We'll make them count for eternity. That's the blessing that you're offered with this new year that is just ahead of you. Let's pray for it. Let's keep humble before our God and let's serve him with the humility, the reverence, and the love and loyalty that he deserves. Will you pray with me? I just want to give you a moment, Christian to reflect on two different notes in the singing of Psalm 90. One is that the secret sins of people are before the Lord's presence. What have you been pretending about? What have you been lying about? What have you been faking? He knows all of it. You can humbly tell him the truth of the matter and by his grace in The work and the person of his son Jesus, your loving heavenly father will forgive you. Just be honest with him, be real. And the second question comes at the end. Moses said, Establish, confirm, bless the work of our hands. What are you going to work on? Is it going to matter? If you do it as unto the Lord, if you do it with His sovereignty and your frailty and clear view, it'll matter forever. That's the beauty of the psalm. God can turn in mercy. God can turn in pity, in compassion, in faithfulness on people and bless the work of our hands. The work that you do can matter forever. If you do it before Him, if you do it honestly, if you do it truthfully, if you do it humbly, the year you will live in 2024 will resonate for eternity as long as you serve and walk with him.